combined with the Home Office's migration policies set out in 2012, the UK is becoming increasingly hostile to refugees and migrants. The UK has since taken drastic measures to extend the anti-migration hostile environment beyond its borders into mainland Europe, thereby preemptively stopping refugees from approaching its borders. Today, we explore the ethical and legal questions such policies raise and the implications these have on the lives of refugees across Europe. episode of Declarations. I am Niusha Bastani. I'll be your host. And Jonas and I have with us today a very special guest, Marta Wellander. Hi, I'm Jonas. I am from Declarations. Uh, so we have today's special guest. Marta Wellander is a PhD candidate and a visiting lecturer in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Westminster, where she researched uh, European border, border violence in the context of contemporary refugee crisis. Marta is also the executive director of a non-governmental human rights organization, Refugee Rights Europe. Under her leadership, the organization has conducted extensive uh, field research in refugee camps and resettlement across Europe, interviewing and surveying more than 4,000 refugees and displaced people since February 2016. Thank you for coming, Marta. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to take part in uh, this episode of Declarations. Before we get to the questions, I wanted to ask, um, you told me that you were in Calais over, over the weekend. I wanted to ask, uh, what's the situation looking like at Calais at this, at this point? Right. So um, every, every 48 hours or so, the living spaces of prospective asylum seekers in Calais and the nearby Dunkirk in northern France are um, evicted often by heavily geared riot police who use tear gas or pepper spray or other um, other agents. Um, and, and they go about confiscating tents, sleeping bags and other personal, personal belongings that people have with them. Um, people are routinely, and I would say also randomly, um, detained and, and or dispersed to remote locations, either in France or even removed to other European countries. Um, and this means that people just uh, start making their way back to the area a few days later. Um, so, so this really convolutes people's migratory routes. Um, others are, you know, following these really inhumane evictions. Others are simply allowed to return back to the exact same living space only a few hours later, which of course raises the question of what is, what actually is the point and underlying intention of the eviction. Um, and then they, of course, face the same ritual again some 48 hours later. Um, so, I mean, overall, the um, the conditions and the current situation in Calais and Dunkirk is absolutely horrific. Uh, individuals are sleeping rough and facing sustained, uh, sustained intimidation and violence by the state authorities. Um, and this 
this is a reality in what I refer to as the uh, British border zone, um, stretching from Calais and Dunkirk in northern France to the capitals of Brussels and Paris and other locations on the Belgian coast. Um, the individuals we see here have typically been on the move for several years, a lot of the time, and they've often experienced deeply traumatizing events, either on their journeys and or, of course, in the country of origin, and now also in Europe, where they thought that they would find peace and some form of protection. So that's just a summary of what's what's going on. Okay, so the situation hasn't changed since the last time we um, visited uh, Calais. No, if anything, I would say the situation has deteriorated further with uh, an increased sort of frequency, a heightened frequency of evictions, um, more intimidation against uh, aid volunteers, um, and fur- further obst- obstruction of aid, which is already. Uh, extremely limited. So I would say, yeah, the the states have tightened their grip on the situation further with, with additional funding having been poured in as well. But I wanted to take you back to the work that you do. Um, can you tell us a bit about your research and the organization that you um, set up, Refugee Rights Europe? Sure. Um, so um, Refugee Rights Europe was set up in response to the wide-ranging human rights violations uh, directed at displaced individuals seeking protection across Europe. Um, So we first started out in early 2016, um, uh, focusing specifically on the situation in Calais and Dunkirk. Uh, But more um, over the the past uh, three and a half years, we have expanded our work uh, to cover multiple European locations. We often work in crisis situations such as the French-Italian border, the Greek islands, and so on and so forth. Uh, what we do is we document the human rights violations taking place. Uh, we document the situation and the shortcomings in the European refugee response. And then we translate those findings. So we translate the voices of displaced people and frontline organizations into coherent uh, policy proposals and recommendations and conduct advocacy work at national EU and international levels to to try and and change things to try and promote structural change so so that's my work with uh, refugee rights europe um, and then i'm also as you as you mentioned in your very generous uh, introduction i'm also a phd candidate at the university of westminster and as part of my research there i am um, indeed looking at forms of border violence in Europe, in particular at the British border. And um, I have, as part of that work, I've been looking at uh, the concept of the politics of exhaustion. Um, And this is a a term that I first coined alongside uh, my colleague Leonie Anselms de Vries at King's College London. Uh, We coined this term together in 2016 in the context of the Calais camp. And I have now been developing this further uh, as part of my PhD research, uh, which is which is based largely on ethnographic work in the border zone and also, well, a, a lot of uh, interviews with displaced people themselves to bring those voices to academia. Marta, I'm wondering if you can give us a bit of context about what it means to be looking at border violence from the UK specifically. So we mentioned the hostile environment briefly in the introduction, um, but could you give us a bit of UK-specific context? 
Absolutely. Um, so I understand the politics of exhaustion as a set of policies and practices which taken together uh, constitute a complex deterrence approach at the British border with the objective of exhausting uh, prospective asylum seekers or displaced individuals mentally and physically with the ultimate goal of indeed deterring them from trying to approach Britain for asylum uh, or, or other European asylum systems for that matter. Um, and I think, I don't know if it would be helpful with a bit of uh, contextualization. I'm sure a lot of your listeners will, will have a lot of insights on this, but just so that we bear in mind that the, the situation in Northern France has of course been a migratory nodal points for many decades with prospective asylum seekers uh, transiting here for, for a very long time on their way to the UK. Uh, but from 2003 onwards, uh, a real bottleneck scenario uh, started building up because of the uh, the UK's juxtaposed border arrangements that they, they established in that year. Um, and those juxtaposed borders um, mean that uh, UK border officials check vehicles and passengers before they reach uh, British soil, of course. So, so this is what we this is what we mean when we say the externalisation of the British border. Um, and so there are those border checks at the Eurotunnel in Coquel, uh, in Calais, Dunkirk, and Belgian ports but also at railway stations uh, where the Eurostar operates in France and Belgium. So, of course, these um, these arrangements, these juxtaposed border uh, arrangements have contributed to a bottleneck scenario where the legal options available for prospective asylum seekers are severely curtailed. There's just no, um, no obvious way to... Uh, to submit an asylum application to the UK. Um, so uh, individuals are stopped at the border um, and therefore many people, of course, choose to try and reach the UK irregularly to seek asylum in the UK, uh, which is, of course, a universally recognised human right under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and also indeed a right enshrined within the 1951 uh, Geneva Convention. Um, but as you said also in your introduction, the uh, the measures and practices have really been um, ha have deteriorated, or should we say, been sort of increased. So the deterrence and mobility governance control uh, methods and practices have intensified in the last few years. Um, so while the bottleneck has been building up since 2003, it's indeed, as you said, the last few years that we've seen, that we've really witnessed this new form of migration governance technique uh, that I call the politics of exhaustion. Uh, it's an experimental immigration control paradigm, I, I would say, uh, that's an extension of the British uh, hostile environment to French and Belgian soil. Um, and it's, again, it's backed up by the juxtaposed border controls, but also vast amounts of British funding going into the practices um, on, on the ground. As you're speaking about the politics of exhaustion, I want to draw out some of the nuances of the term a bit. So is it a key part of this that borders are being pushed back and externalized? Um, so... I'm trying to understand that in relation to 
the U a particular contingent in the UK having had for since the hostile environment policies came into place and even before that having this rhetoric of the UK taking control of its borders having harder borders um, at the same time these borders or border zones aren't actually located within the UK absolutely so I think this is absolutely a form of externalization of um, of immigration control or uh, mobility governance if you want to call it that um, and um, I think it's also I think I see it as quite an experimental form of immigration control and I think it's a way for the for Britain to continue upholding an apparent status as a law a, a law-abiding nation that operates a functioning asylum system domestically and that pays lip service to human rights law uh, by, by refraining from taking any more drastic and overtly unlawful measures such as regular blanket returns, refoulement or mass detention. So because we have to, uh, I mean, it has to be said that the politics of exhaustion are relatively subtle. Um, uh, there's a lot of sort of covert forms of violence within this um, and it's quite difficult to challenge the politics of exhaustion legally. Um, and of course, I mean, but but of course, morally speaking, um, there's there's also something to be said there, uh, because I think what you referred to earlier, sort of the contingency and the narrative of so-called illegal migrants, I think this certainly helps um, uh, justify um, morally the, what is going on on French soil. So this narrative of illegal migrants and this form of swarm of migrants coming in to, uh, to, um, to use the British benefit system or whatever, uh, whatever is being said in prevalent uh, British policy and media discourses. I think this certainly helps uh, state actors to get away with a raft of violent measures um, and, and justify these to national constituencies and, and some of the international watchdogs that are, are silent on, on the issue of Calais. Um, whilst still keeping the borders tightly controlled and keeping mobility governed. I wanted to link that to the experiences that we saw on the ground, um, thinking in terms of borders, because um, as Nyosha was saying, the border has been externalised to beyond um, the UK's borders. Uh, when, we were, when we were doing the interview in 2017, I believe, we were going around asking the, um, asking the refugees that were in Cali at that point to um, their understanding of uh, borders themselves. So one of the questions that we asked, I remember that, um, was if they know where the British border is. And one of the findings, I mean, the, the people that we spoke to was um, they, they, they seem to understand that the borders and uh, with the fence, the, uh, the, uh, the ports and everything that they see in front of them, they thought that this was the French border and not the British border. And would you feel this is part of the border zone, the British border zone that we're talking about, not only in terms of the legality or the international community, but in terms of the refugees themselves? Yeah, this is a really interesting point, actually. And and as you said, uh, a lot of people that we've spoken to over the years have indeed thought that it was the French state that was, was keeping them in France uh, rather than the British state keeping them out. Um, 
And I'm not sure um, to what degree that is a calculated uh, sort of aspect of the politics of exhaustion. I don't think it is. Uh, but what I what what I have thought about is the fact that it's it, it just creates another for for those who believe in push and pull factors. I think this this could be understood as creating another push factor, pushing people from. France to Britain because they think that the British state is welcoming and uh, that Britain is a wonderful place for individuals to seek asylum and that the French state is inherently violent and wants to abuse them on French soil. So I think it's just a really, um, it, it's all really uh, counterproductive and, and uh, muddled uh, and, and that's really clear from those interviews that we've that we've had and, and i and i think one of the things that um that was really clear from uh, from the presence of the most of the charities that are working in in calais um, um there are british charities um, uh, there is help refugees there is uh, utopia 56 and refugee rights europe to a certain extent as well um because they're mostly um the language that they speak is obviously like that's from the uk so when they see the french um violence from the from from the police and uh, the charities that provide the food and the shelter, um, they seem to think, and I think this was the key for me, was the, um, the unintended consequence of the, the good that the charities were doing. Uh, of course, they are there for a reason, but it kind of hides the fact that the British government is hostile to, um, in the eyes of the refugees, what they seem to think was because the violence comes from the police, but the good things come from the uh, British charities that were there. So for me, it was really interesting to see that, um, you know, there was... In the eyes of the refugees, the, like you said, the British government is kind of, you know, the good government and the, the French government is the, the bad one. Absolutely. No, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. Which leads me to my next question related to the violence. What are the sorts of the forms of violence that the governments use to, to deter migrants from approaching the British borders on? Yeah, so this brings us back to the, the notion of politics of exhaustion. Um, and I think, so as a, as a tool of policy or a tool of um, mobility governance, uh, the policy, politics of exhaustion uh, comprises various forms of violence, ranging from really overtly and, and overt and physical forms of direct violence to the more subtle uh, banalized and kind of covert forms of of, um, of structural violence and or the threat of violence. So um, as I illustrated earlier in our conversation today, um, the way that the politics of exhaustion pans out on the ground is through these, these um, regular and inhumane evictions of improvised living spaces, stripping people off the very last belongings that they have. Um, it's also, uh, and so that is, of course, a form a form of violence itself, even if it's not always um, accompanied by beatings, uh, uh, well, and sometimes it is. Um, there's also the random arrests and detentions and the uh, terrible conditions in some of the detention centers. There's um, repeated removals that I mentioned earlier, where individuals are either removed to remote areas in France and just dropped somewhere so that they then have to make their way back um, to Calais again, um, or removals to other European countries under the Dublin regulation. And again, this means that a lot of individuals spend days making their way back to, uh, to northern France again, which contributes to this exhaustion. 
Um, but also, as I alluded to earlier, there's also within the politics of exhaustion and within these border uh, control practices, there's also a deeply concerning element of active neglect um, where, you know, there's an exacerbation of untreated mental and physical health problems. Um, and I think, you know, keeping people um, in a completely hostile and violent space without access to, to any form of care or treatment has really resulted, as we've seen recently, in absolute mental health crisis in northern France with, um, you know, countless examples of self-harm. Um, we've had, you know, we've seen suicide attempts and just an incredible degradation of health. Um, and so, so, so these are all, um, all subtle uh, forms of, of indirect violence. But then there's, of course, as well, the, the you know, the beatings, uh, the use of police dogs without muffles, um, breaking of limbs, um, and really heavy, heavy-handed approach as well. I think that physical violence usually takes place in the context of uh, unauthorized border crossings. Uh, whereas the more subtle and covert and structural forms of violence can take place at, at any point, really, to create this very hostile uh, environment or hostile context for individuals in the area. So from what you're describing and these experiences of violence, I'm wondering why it is the term that of exhaustion that really stuck out to you most. Um, could you say a bit about that and maybe... Is that something that came from what you heard in interviews? Um, do you feel that that's the overarching sentiment above other ones of, say, fear? Or I'm not sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I think exhaustion, the sense, the sense of exhaustion was really what, uh, what came out really strongly as part of the interviews that we've conducted over the years with Refugee Rights Europe. Uh, and also as part of my uh, PhD interviews um, conducted uh, more recently. And I think um, uh, I think the all of the practices, the, the more subtle forms of violence and neglect and intimidation, they all contribute to this really heightened sense of of exhaustion where people keep exerting, keep using their agency to try and find a solution to their predicament, but being constantly pushed back, dispersed, intimidated, harassed, <laughs> you know, um, beaten. I think in the long run, and this is, I think it's a form of, we could see it as a form of structural violence, but over time. So there's a temporal aspect to it. Um, and over time, these continued and sustained subtle forms of violence eventually lead to the breakdown of agency and, and um, you know, individuals' ability to continue trying um, to reach Britain and continue trying to find a solution to their really, really awful uh, situation that they've been trapped within. Um, so I think, you know, the, the way I see it is these are individuals who, who refuse to uh, to give up and who've come so far, who've uh, traveled thousands, uh, thousands of miles um, across, you know, 
deserts. Many of them have spent long time in, in places like Libya to then cross the Mediterranean. Um, and then they've been bounced around often between European countries without founding any um, any way out of their uh, predicament. Um, and they, they are not uh, willing to give up. But what the states, the French and British states are doing here is just grinding people down day by day and bringing them closer to exhaustion uh, through all of these uh, nonsensical practices of evicting a living space only to let people come back a few hours later, intimidating individuals, treating them badly. It's become really clear that the, the sense of, you know, exhaustion and and, and um, grinding, you know, the practices that can grind people down and, and, and try and uh, break down people's agency and willingness to try i think that really is what has stood out uh, in this context can you give us a sense of the timeline um so when you speak to people what are on the on the longer side how long can someone be trying over and over again to reach the uk it really varies between individuals uh, we often meet uh, people who have just arrived who've been there for you know for a week at the time of the interview and who still have a really strong morale and still have a lot of energy and hope. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, you find individuals who have been there for, for more than a year, sometimes several years. Um, there's also um, a, a lot of people who've uh, been, you know, been to Calais and then gone to Paris to try from there or Brussels or who've gone somewhere to, to take some rest in between the attempts. Um, it could also be that someone uh, first came to Calais, realized how difficult it was to, to cross the final border and then went somewhere else to, to try to claim asylum. They may have been refused or they may have uh, had to wait for a very long time and then decided to give up and go back to Calais again. So we're talking really varied circumstances between uh, between the people we've spoken to. but. Indeed, you can imagine someone who's been in this area for more than a year and experiencing these regular evictions and, and forms of violence for more than a year. Um, I, I personally cannot understand how they have the strength to continue. And I think it's, it's so humbling and it's, it's, um, it's, inc it, it, it's, an, it's an, a manifestation of an incredible human strength that you find in Calais. And therefore, uh, the uh, the states continue time and again to try and break that down and grind people down. Um, individuals who re refuse to give up and accept um, this exclusion and this uh, immobility that the border has has uh, inflicted upon them. to end the episodes by asking our guests to give us a sense of three key things they would like the audience to take away from this discussion. Is there anything that comes to mind for you? Well, I think it's really important that we uh, acknowledge and bear in mind the wider context of this situation. 
uh, which is found in the underlying structures of deeply cemented global inequalities. We cannot look at the European refugee and migration crisis, so so-called crisis, without acknowledging the legacy of past and present entanglement of the West with the rest of the world, and acknowledge the close links and with the damages brought on by colonization, exploitation of resources, and so on. There's a responsibility now to um, to, to let people cross borders and let people. Um, find a, a, a different reality. Um, so I think we, we all, we should all uh, challenge the, the established notion of, uh, of borders. And, and I think this is really brought to light by the incredible resilient individuals at our borders who, who refuse to abide by these arbitrary boundaries and that, that are created. Um, and this is the same way that folks in history have refused to accept the system of slavery, colonialism, and apartheid. And I think it's um, we really need to time and again emphasize this wider context and the underlying structures of, of deeply cemented global inequalities uh, that there are. So, so that's the one, one thing I'd like to emphasize. Another thing is I, I would highlight the inherently violent nature of the British border. And I think that also needs to to be questioned. Um, the politics of exhaustion is a framework that allows us to better understand the the very violent nature of, of the border, um, the, the, the mobility govern, governance uh, utilized uh, by Britain. so much for taking your time to speak to us Marta. Yeah thank you so much it was it was a real pleasure to speak to you uh, thanks for having me. Please let us know what you thought about today's discussion or if there's something you'd like to know more about. You can send us an email editor at declarationspod.com like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at declarationspod. You can also check out our website declarationspod.com, where every episode has a companion piece with more information about each week's topics. These are written by our show notes writer, Katerina O'Mellon. Our media manager is Misbah Malik. Our sound editor is Helen Jennings. Matt Mahmoudi and Max Curtis are our producers. And Jin Min Tan is our executive producer. Tune in next time for more Declarations. Declarations.